a Southern Airways DC-9 is on its way from Alabama to Georgia when a storm hits. What caused this plane to attempt landing on a highway? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hey. Hello. We released our one-year episode today. Woot. 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 Thanks for listening, y'all. Remember to submit your aviation stories and your listener questions. Today, we get to answer a listener question at the end, so stick around. Yeah, we do. And check out Patreon. And that's all the plugs we're going to do for now. So, what are we covering today, Nick? (laughs) (laughs) So, today we are covering Southern Airways Flight 242. Thank you to David for recommending this. Oh, hey, yeah. Hey. Thanks, David. Oh, he gets a double whammy in this episode. (laughs) Because guess who the question's from? Bam. David. All right. Cool. So. It's because it's in Georgia. It's in Georgia. It's in Georgia. Yep. So, this happened on April 4th of 1977. This was a DC-9-31, so a Douglas DC-9, twin jet engine, tail-mounted engine, with the tail number November 1335 Uniform. The captain for our flight is William Bill McKenzie. He was 54 years old. He had 19,380 hours total, so he is one of the more experienced pilots we've had. Bang! Yeah, he had 3,205 hours on the DC-9, so a decent amount of time on the DC-9 as well. The first officer was Lyman Keel, Jr. He was 34 years old. He had 3,878 hours total, so a bit of time, of which only 325 hours were in the DC-9. So he was relatively new to the DC-9. Our flight today is to take us from Muscle Shoals, Alabama, to Atlanta with a stopover in Huntsville. It's in Alabama? Yeah. (laughs) Sorry, friend. I'm sorry. Alabama? Yeah, if you're offended by that, but that's how we say Alabama. Here. FYI, Brendan, that's been on here a bunch of times, is from Alabama. He was, yeah, he was born in Alabama. <laughs> yeah, although Wait, he's where was hard... where was he born? He was born Montgomery. No, no, I thought he was born in Huntsville. Huntsville. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he's born in Huntsville, which is where this is. Yep, taking off from. Yes, they departed Muscle Shoals at 3:21 p.m. and landed at Huntsville at 3:44 p.m. The following flight was to have 81 passengers plus the four crew members on the flight from Huntsville to Atlanta, which is a very, very short flight, by the way. The flight departed Huntsville at about 3.54 p.m. Eastern Time. The flight was to fly direct to the Rome VOR, then follow the descent profile to Atlanta runway 26. The total estimated flight time was 25 minutes. And a cruising altitude was to be 17,000 feet, amazingly. That Pretty whole, low, yeah. Yeah, that whole cruising time was supposed to be about three, four minutes. So, not... It's, you go up, <laughs> oh, we're yeah. going back down. So, in cases like this, where the flight is so short, basically what they're doing is there's charts for arrival into an airport. You have what's called the STAR. Standard Terminal Arrival Route. So, basically what's happening is they're flying, they take off from their departure airport... And all they're actually doing in this case is setting up to fly a star, a standard terminal arrival route, into Atlanta. So literally what that means is on the star, there's required altitudes that they have to be at at certain points along that route. 
The only reason they had to go to 17,000 feet is so that they can follow that route down onto runway 26. So they literally only flew up to 17,000 feet to meet the Rome VOR, the first point along the descent path to runway 26 in Atlanta. So they take off just to fly the descent. That's it, basically. At 3.54 p.m. and 35 seconds, the flight contacted the departure controller at Huntsville. So within a few seconds of takeoff. At 3.54 and 39 seconds, four seconds later, the departure controller cleared the flight to climb to 17,000 feet for cruising as they were just climbing out of Huntsville Airport. At 3.55 p.m. and 58 seconds, so a little over a minute later, the captain said, Will the radar is full of it. Take your pick. So... Full of what? Rain. Oh. They're looking at their radar on the airplane, and they're flying into clouds immediately after takeoff. Always fun. Yes. The funnest of fun. Yes. At 3.56 p.m., the air traffic controller informed the flight that the radar was showing heavy precipitation about five nautical miles ahead of them. So pretty close. They're gaining on it quickly. The crew responded, Okay, we're in the rain right now. It doesn't look much heavier than what we're in, does it? At 3.56 and 12 seconds, the air traffic controller responded, I got weather cutting devices on which is cutting out the, the precip that you're in now. However... It's not a solid mass. It appears to be a little bit heavier than what you're in right now. So in other words, they should expect to go through a little bit heavier rain. The crew replied, okay, thank you. At 3.56 and 37 seconds, a conversation between the flight crew about the weather radar in the cockpit begins with the first officer saying, I can't read that. It just looks like rain, Bill. What do you think? There's a hole. The captain replied, there's a hole right there. That's all I see. Then come over, we had pretty good radar. So, in other words, what he's talking about is they've already flown this route, basically, earlier in the day, and they had already flown past this point, and the weather wasn't that bad two hours prior when they had flown this. He continues saying, I believe right straight ahead, there the next few miles is about the best way we can go. So, he believes that there's a hole, because he's looking at the radar, he believes there's a way through without going into any worse precipitation. At 3.57 p.m. and 36 seconds, the air traffic controller said, You're in what appears to be about the heaviest part of it now. What are your flight conditions? The crew responded, We're getting a little bit, a little light turbulence and, I'd say, moderate rain. At 3.57 and 47 seconds, so a few seconds later, the air traffic controller acknowledged the report and told the flight to contact Memphis Center. You'll see, they get handed off to about eight different air traffic controllers in a matter of about ten minutes. Is there a reason for that? Because it's extremely busy airspace, and their route just has them going through so many different sectors of airspace, it's probably changed significantly since then, and it's probably such so much more simplified now. But on this route, they pass through so many different sectors, and it's a short flight. At 3.58 p.m. and 10 seconds, the crew contacted Memphis Air Route Traffic Control Center, and 22 seconds later, the captain said, as long as it doesn't get any heavier, we'll be all right. The first officer replied, yeah, this is good. At 3.58 p.m. and 26 seconds, the air traffic controller advised the flight that a SIGMET, or a significant meteorological information, was now current for the part of the country that they were flying in. So these are large areas of weather information that's just a general, the basically National Weather Service puts out these big giant areas that says to pilots, beware, you're flying in an area that's likely to have Bad weather. Really bad weather. A moment later, the air traffic controller told the flight to contact Atlanta Air Route Traffic Control Center. 
So they already got passed off to another air traffic controller. At 3.59 p.m., the captain said, Here we go. Hold him, cowboy. Mind you, at this point, the captain isn't flying. The first officer is the pilot flying. So the captain is telling the first officer, Hold on to it, basically. The first officer is the one who's flying? Yep. Okay. The captain is doing all the radio calls during this. At 3.59 p.m. and six seconds, so six seconds later, about five minutes after takeoff, the flight contacted the Atlanta Air Route Traffic Control Center and informed them that they were, quote, out of 11 for 17. So they were leaving 11,000 feet, heading up to 17,000 feet. The air traffic controller responded, quote, Roger, expect Rome runway 26 profile descent, which was acknowledged by the flight crew. So this is all everything they had planned already. At 4 p.m. and 30 seconds, the flight is being pelted by extremely heavy rain. At 4.02 p.m. and 57 seconds, the captain says, I think we'd better slow it up right here in this. So in other words, he's noting how heavy the rain is, and he thinks they should slow down a little bit, maybe? The first officer replies, got you covered. At 4.03 p.m. and one second, the air traffic controller begins a conversation with another flight that had just crossed the storm area northwest of the Rome VOR, asking, quote, How would you classify your ride through that line up there? You recommend anyone else come through it? The flight responded, It was not too comfortable, but we didn't get into anything we would consider the least bit hazardous. So the other flight they were talking to didn't have a terrible ride, but not great. But they said it was definitely, definitely handleable. At 4.03 p.m., Flight 242 was instructed to contact yet another Atlanta Center controller. 20 seconds later, the flight contacted that air traffic controller and said they were level at 17. So they were at 17,000 feet now. At 4.03 p.m. and 48 seconds, the captain said, Looks heavy. Nothing's going through that. So they're noting on the radar that the weather ahead of them looked pretty nasty. And they said, Nothing's going to go through that area over there. They were assuming they were going into the better part. So, forgive me if I'm wrong, uh-huh. but isn't there a point where the flight crew can say, all right, we need to land somewhere instead of going through this? Or just go around it altogether. But we'll get into why they didn't do that. They didn't know basically anything about this storm. Six seconds later, the captain said, quote, see that? First officer responded, that's a hole, isn't it? Captain replied, it's not showing a hole. See it? So in other words, the hole that they were flying into... It's no longer a hole. Suddenly wasn't one. At 4.04 p.m. and 8 seconds, the first officer asks, do you want to go around that right now? At 4.04 p.m. and 19 seconds, the captain responds, hand fly it about 285 knots. First officer responds, 285. So another... Didn't really answer. Yes, so that wasn't really an answer except that he basically wants them to take over hand-flying the airplane instead of flying the direct route so that they can deviate as necessary. That's essentially the answer. They're, he's giving him So the answer is no. Basically. Okay. But you in short... probably just say, no, we're going to hand-fly it. Well, no, we're going to... an answer. We're going to hand-fly it, but that's the expectation that they could go around it as necessary. At 4.04 p.m. and 30 seconds, suddenly heavy hail begins pelting the airplane along with the heavy rain they were already experiencing. 20 seconds later, the flight reported to air traffic control that they were reducing their speed. At 4.05 p.m. and 53 seconds, the first officer said, Which way do we go across here or go out? I don't know how we get through there, Bill. The captain replied, I know you're just going to have to go out. Which doesn't tell him anything, quite frankly. No. Yep. It means both of you don't know where you're going. You might want to consider an alternate route. 
you would think. They're already in the thick of this. They're trying to figure out which way is the best way out of it. The first officer responds, quote, Yeah, right across that band, end quote, referring to the weather radar. At 4.06 p.m. in one second, the captain stated, All clear left approximately right now. I think we can cut across there now. At 4.06 p.m. in 12 seconds, the first officer replied, All right, here we go. So in other words, their hand flying, and now they're probably heading toward a different course. At 4.06 p.m. in 41 seconds, the air traffic controller cleared the flight to descend to 14,000 feet. At 4.06 p.m. in 53 seconds, so about 12 seconds later, the captain acknowledged the descent, and he and the first officer had a conversation about another flight, talking with the air traffic controller at the time, that was nearby and seemed to be in better weather conditions. So they were hoping to get into the area that that plane was flying through. Suddenly, heavy hail began pelting the airplane even harder, and the front windshield shattered. Yikes. Yep. The airplane then lost electrical power for 36 seconds, but the engines kept running. That's fortunate. Yep. During the outage, the air traffic controller attempted to make contact with the flight four times regarding their altitude with no response. Well, they had no electrical, so it's not like they could answer them. Right. The air traffic controller was trying to get them to stop at 15,000 instead of going down to the initial 14,000 they were given because there was traffic at 14,000. Ooh. Yep. Would their TCAS have worked if... Their electrical was No out? TCAS 1977. Oh. No TCAS. When was TCAS a thing? I believe it was in the 90s, mostly. We're going to do... Might have been in the... Well, it might have been in the 80s, because I think it was the advent with the 757 and 767. But, yeah, in 1977, there wasn't really TCAS. There was air traffic controllers. Mid-70s. But this is a DC-9. That's when the idea came about and development began. Yeah. A short time later, prototypes of TCAS-2 were installed on two 727s. The system was certified in April 1986 and subsequently approved for operational evaluation in 87. So, late 80s, really. So it wouldn't have really been implemented till the 90s. On a fifth attempt, the flight crew managed to respond, quote, stand by to the air traffic controller. The first officer stated, quote, got it, got it back, Bill, got it back. So in other words, they got the power back on, obviously. At 4.08 p.m. and 49 seconds, the air traffic controller responded back to the standby message with, quote, Roger, maintain 15,000 if, if you understand me. Maintain 15,000 Southern 242. So trying to reiterate, don't go down to 14,000 feet. At 4.08 p.m. and 55 seconds, the crew responded, quote, we're trying to get it up there. So now they've got to climb back up to 15,000. At 4.09 p.m. and 15 seconds, crew stated, okay, we just got our windshield busted out. We'll try to get it back up to 15. We're at 14. At 4.09 p.m. and 36 seconds, so 21 seconds later, the first officer said, Left engine won't spool. The left engine was quickly shutting down, uncommanded. Is it due to the amount of hail? It's due to several things. Great. They immediately reported to air traffic control, quote, Our left engine was cut out. The air traffic control responded, Roger, and lost your transponder, squawk 5623. At 4.09 p.m. and 43 seconds, the first officer told the captain, I'm squawking 5623 and tell him I'm level at 14. So he's telling the captain to respond to him. At 4.09 p.m. and 59 seconds, the captain stated, Autopilot off. First officer immediately responded, I got it. I'll hand fly it. At 4.10 p.m., the air traffic controller cleared the flight to descend to 13,000 feet. And four seconds later, the first officer said, My, the other engine's going too. As the right engine spooled back and shut down uncommanded as well. They immediately notified the air traffic controller. The other engine's going too. 
The air traffic controller said, Say again? The flight crew responded, Stand by, we lost both engines. At 4.10pm and 14 seconds, the first officer said, Alright, Bill, get us a vector to a clear area. Telling the captain to again talk to air traffic control, find a clear place to go. Two seconds later, the captain radioed air traffic control, quote, Get us a vector to a clear area, Atlanta. The air traffic controller replied, Continue present southeast bound heading. TWA is off your left about 14 nautical miles at 14,000 and says he's in the clear. The flight crew responded, Okay. So the air traffic controller is trying to help him, telling him there's another flight that's in the clear area at 14,000 feet, 14 nautical miles to their left. They just have to try to head to that area and hopefully be in good weather. But mind you, they don't have engines to use. A few seconds later, the crew asked the air traffic controller, Want us to turn left? So in other words, asking if they should turn left toward that TWA flight? The air traffic controller replied, Contact approach control 126.9. They'll try to get you straight into Dobbins. Dobbins Air Force Base was near them, and the first officer was very familiar with the base, as it turned out, as he had been stationed there in his time in the military as a reserve pilot for the Navy years earlier. Didn't Dobbins... Wasn't Dobbins also part of one of Dave's listener stories? Yes. Yep. <laughs> At 4.10 p.m. and 36 seconds, the first officer said, Give me... I'm familiar with Dobbins. Tell them to give me a vector to Dobbins if they're clear. So he's telling... He's super enthusiastic. I, I, I can go there. I know this place. At 4.10 p.m. and 38 seconds, the captain asked the air traffic controller, Give me a, a vector to Dobbins if they're clear. The air traffic controller replied, 126.9. They'll give you a vector to Dobbins. So they hadn't changed frequencies yet. They were given this instruction to go to the other air traffic controller who takes care of the airspace over Dobbins. The captain replied, 269, okay. 4.10 p.m. and 50 seconds, the first officer said, Ignition override, it's gotta work. So they're trying to restart the engines, still. At 4.10 p.m. and 56 seconds, the electrical power was again lost on the flight for 2 minutes and 4 seconds as they attempted to start the APU since they were losing electrical power over the battery. During their electrical downtime, the air traffic controller attempted to contact them three times, and the TWA flight nearby attempted to contact them once, all with no response. As the plane was encountering all of these issues, the lead cabin crew member entered the cockpit and saw all of the chaos, including the shattered windshield, and the flight crew told her to prep the cabin for an emergency landing. At 4.13 p.m., the electrical power was once again restored, and two seconds later, the captain said, There we go. The first officer replied, get us a vector to Dobbins. At 4.13 p.m. and 4 seconds of 4 seconds later, the captain transmitted to air traffic controller, Atlanta, you read 242? The air traffic controller responded, Southern 242, Atlanta, go ahead. The captain then said, we've lost both engines. How about giving us vectors to the nearest place? We're at 7,000. So now they're down at 7,000 feet. The air traffic controller replied, quote, Southern 242, Roger, turn right, heading 100 will be vectors to Dobbins for a straight-in approach runway 11. Your position is 15, correction, 20 miles west of Dobbins at this time. So they were still 20 miles from Dobbins Air Force Base, only at 7,000 feet. Do they have enough time to get there without any engines? You'll find out. They're gonna try. They are gonna try. Like, I realize, so, fun fact, we've talked about this before, but... When you lose both engines and you're going fast enough, the plane just turns into a glider. And it'll glide until it hits the ground, basically. Yes. And taking turns and things slows the plane down more, which makes you go slower, which makes it easier to crash. 
So I'm just wondering, I mean, 20 miles is quite a long way to go without any engines. It is. Especially if they have to turn. It is. So I'm interested to think if they even have enough time to get to Dobbins. Right. Well, you'll see. As the air traffic controller was making this transmission, the first officer asked the captain, What's Dobbins weather, Bill? How far is it? How far is it? Oh my god, shut up. He's getting really anxious, <laughs> and he keeps bothering the captain for information. Okay, the problem I have with that is when you get anxious, everyone around you gets anxious. Yes. And then it's just not a good place to be. Yeah. Calm down. Stay calm. Right. We're going to figure it out. Right. You're still in the air. You're fine for now. Yes. Just Well, and that anxiety shows. Well, and mind you, he was asking Bill this question right over air traffic, the air traffic controller's response to them wanting vectors. So he's asking Bill these questions quickly. The captain responded to the air traffic controller's message for the vectors and stated, quote, Okay, 140 and 20 miles. You might remember I said that they were meant to turn to a heading of 100? Yeah. Obviously, the anxiety was wearing on them because... They're one, misunderstanding. They're misunderstanding. Well, not just that, but when you have someone asking you so many questions yeah. and you're trying to pay attention to air traffic control at the same time, yeah. you're going to mess some stuff up. Right. Thankfully, the air traffic controller copped that. That's good. At, at least they're doing their job. Yes. <laughs> at 4.13 p.m. and 35 seconds, the air traffic controller directed... Make a heading of 120, Southern 242, turn right to 120. So he corrected them and corrected their course so that they would be headed at Dobbins more correctly. The captain replied, quote, Okay, right turn to 120, and you got us our, you got us our squawk, haven't you? An emergency? As he transmitted that to the air traffic controller, the first officer stated, Declare an emergency, Bill. Oh my gosh, shut up. Stop talking. Yeah. <laughs> At this point, I'm surprised the captain didn't just say, shut up. <laughs> yeah. I'm doing it. Can you calm down and fly the damn airplane, please? You would think. At 4.13 p.m. and 45 seconds, the air traffic controller replied, quote, I'm not receiving it, but radar contact. Your position 20 miles west of Dobbins. So, in other words, their squawk wasn't showing, which is normally a little code, and it gives them altitude and speed information. But they were showing on the radar anyways, even though they couldn't see the squawk code. And those codes have very specific meanings. They can have emergency meanings, but if they don't show up for the radar controller, then it's harder for them to know. The captain replied, okay. At 4.14 p.m. and 3 seconds, the first officer said, get those engines. At 4.14 p.m. and 24 seconds, the flight crew transmitted to air traffic control, all right, listen, we've lost both engines and I can't tell you the implications of this. We only got two engines. How far is Dobbins now? So in other words, they're getting really concerned. This was likely the captain that made this message, and he's really concerned. He's realizing Dobbins is too far. They don't have either engine operating, and they only have two engines, so they can't get any thrust. Your traffic controller replied, 19 miles. So Not enough. Yes. Not enough. All of these things happened within the course of a less than a minute. And they're still 19 miles away. The crew replied, okay, we're out of 5,800 feet, 200 knots. Not enough. Nope. Find a field. <laughs> a few moments later, the air traffic controller asked, Southern 242, do you have one engine running now? The captain replied, negative, no engines. At 4.15 p.m. and 4 seconds, the captain told the first officer, just don't stall this thing out. The first officer replied, no, I won't. 
While all of this was happening, the cabin crew were walking through the cabin, prepping the passengers and ensuring that they were ready for the emergency landing one by one. All the passengers were holding hands and calmly pre prepping for the worst. The captain said, Get your wing flaps. The first officer moved the flap lever. At 4.15 p.m. and 11 seconds, the first officer said, I got it, got hydraulics, so we got... Captain replied, we got hydraulics. A few seconds later, the first officer asked, What's the Dobbins weather? A second later, the captain asked air traffic controller, What's Dobbins weather? Your traffic controller replied, Stand by. At 4.15 and 46 seconds, about 25 seconds after the captain called, the air traffic controller responded, Southern 242, Dobbins weather is 2,000 scattered, estimated 7,000 overcast, visibility 7 miles. So, actually pretty decent weather, considering. The captain replied, Okay, we're down to 4,600 now. The air traffic controller replied, Roger, and you're approximately 17 miles west of Dobbins at this time. Not enough time. They're dropping altitude too fast. Exactly. At 4.16 p.m. and 5 seconds, the captain transmitted, I don't know whether we can make that or not. Six seconds later, the first officer asked the captain, Ask him if there's anything between here and Dobbins. The captain asked, What? And the first officer repeated that. At 4.16 p.m. and 25 seconds, the captain asked the air traffic controller, Is there anything between our position and Dobbins? Your traffic controller replied initially, No, sir. Closest airport is Dobbins. Nine seconds later, the captain transmitted, I doubt we're going to make it, but we're trying everything to get something started. So in other words, the engines. The air traffic controller replied, Roger, well, there is Cartersville. You're approximately 10 miles south of Cartersville, 15 miles west of Dobbins. So there was a closer airport. I don't even think they could make that, though. It's still pretty far. Yes, that's far. At 4.16 p.m. and 45 seconds, the captain asked the air traffic controller, can you give us a vector to Cartersville? So they started to change their mind. Let's go over there. It's closer. The air traffic controller replied, all right, turn left, heading 360, direct vectors to Carterville. The captain replied, 360, roger. Eight seconds later, the captain asked the air traffic controller, what's the runway heading? The air traffic controller replied, stand by. And the captain asked, and how long is it? The air traffic controller again replied, stand by. At 4.17 p.m. and eight seconds, the captain said, I'm picking out a clear field. So the captain now is starting to think, we're not going to make it there either. we got to find... Find a field, find a field. Find a field. Well, here's the thing. At this point, the plane had finally dropped below the looming clouds and the crew could visually see the terrain around them. The first officer replied, Bill, you've got to find me a highway. Do not land a DC-9 on a highway. The captain replied, let's get the next clear open field. Yeah, <laughs> do, not, do not land on a highway. The first officer said, no. Excuse me? <laughs> 4.17 p.m. and 35 seconds, the captain said, see a highway over, no cars. The first officer asked, right there, is that all right? That straight? The captain replied, no. And the first officer said, we'll have to take it. So, in other words, the highway wasn't even a straight line. Uh, excuse me? Mind you, this is a pretty wooded part of the country, so it's hard to find fields. Yeah, but just saying no? Mm -hmm. Also, highways? Mm -hmm. I don't know if any of you... I've seen a plane, a small plane land on a highway. It's incredibly dangerous, mm -hmm. especially since people drive on highways. Mm -hmm. Imagining a DC-9 trying yeah. to land on a highway? Right. Uh, no? Right. <laughs> a few seconds later, the air traffic controller transmitted, Southern 242 runway configuration at Cartersville is 360 and runway north and south and the elevation is 756 feet and trying to get the length now. It's 3,200 feet long. 
A few seconds later, the crew transmitted their last message to the air traffic controller. Quote, We're putting it on the highway. We're down to nothing. The wingtips began contacting trees and other obstacles on either side of the plane as it approached the State Spur Highway 92 in New Hope, Georgia. The plane touched down on the highway, initially very smoothly, but it bounced, became airborne again, and then it slammed back down on the highway hard, followed by an impact with more trees, houses, and other obstacles. As the plane touched down, the left wing struck an embankment that caused the plane to veer to the left of, off of the highway. The aircraft carved another 1,260 feet of destruction before it came to rest on a gas station where it was completely destroyed. Sixty passengers, the two flight crew, and eight people on the ground perished in the accident. That said, 21 passengers, one crew member, and one person on the ground were seriously injured, and one crew member was only minorly injured. However, two of the seriously injured, one of the passengers, and one person on the ground later passed away about a month later. They couldn't be contributed to the accident because regulations, the Federal Aviation Regulations, said that seven days, max, is all they could count as being a cause by the accident. Mm, I don't know about that. Nick and I were talking about this earlier, and it's it could be something went wrong with the surgery or what have you. It might be contributed more to medical practice than the actual accident. To last a month. Yeah, but it... They it lasted might a month. Also, be complications that happen because of the accident. Yes, but point is, regulations make it such that anything past seven days after the accident cannot be attributed to the accident. Did they change that? Nope. Or is it still the same? I don't same? think so. I'm I pretty sure so. it's still seven days. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's probably still the same. I don't know if I hundred percent agree with that, but okay. So now let's get a little different perspective, real quick. One of the surviving passengers, who was a commercially licensed pilot who was seated just forward of the left side engine intake, stated that he felt the flight was routine until they encountered heavy turbulence, followed by very heavy precipitation. He noted a lightning strike on the left wingtip, followed by hail. The hail quickly increased in size and intensity. Then he noted the right engine quit, then the left engine quit shortly after. He believed that the lights in the cabin went out shortly after the lightning strike, but before the hail began. I thought it was the left and the right. You're correct. That's what the crew thought. Oh. He estimated that the the turbulence lasted for one to two minutes, while the hail and heavy precipitation lasted about 45 to 60 seconds. The engines quit shortly after the hail had ceased. And just before the right engine quit, he heard loud popping sounds from an area ahead of the engine. Then he heard it again just before the left engine quit, indicating engine surges. He noted that the left engine inlet was heavily dented from the hail. He then heard the sound of the APU starting and running. That took about two minutes. That was the period of time where they had no power for two minutes and four seconds. The two flight attendants that survived the crash also concurred with pretty much this entire statement. They felt that this is exactly how things happened. So for wreckage, a combination grocery store slash gasoline station was destroyed by the fire. A truck and five cars were destroyed. Another car and a house were also substantially damaged. Many trees, shrubs, lawns, utility lines, power lines, mailboxes, highway signs, and fences were also damaged. The total wreckage path was 1,900 feet long. Jeez. The fuselage broke into five main sections, the first being the nose rearward to a portion of the cockpit, the second being just forward of the cockpit bulkhead to pass the first four passenger windows, 
The third being 12 cabin window length of the fuselage. The fourth being the wing center section of the plane, which came to rest inverted. And the last being the rear bulkhead, engine, and tailplane section. A large section of the tail had also separated from the fuselage before the plane came to rest. When the plane did come to rest, the flight crew's seats were outside of the cockpit. They both passed away. The forward flight crew seat was outside of the airplane, but the coat closets and surrounding structures had collapsed to protect the flight attendants seated there. Both flight attendants were able to get up and assist the survivors. That said, a family in the partially destroyed home originally thought that the fire and the wreckage was due to a tornado as they had gone to the basement in preparation for the approaching bad weather. But they quickly realized what had happened and that the wreckage wasn't from a storm, but rather from an airplane. Then injured people just started quietly walking out of the wreckage toward their damaged house, and the family took them in and helped to take care of them before the rescue crews arrived. That was nice. Yeah, one of the flight attendants actually used their phone to call and... Ambulance? Well, call... A lot of people, actually. I don't know exactly who they called because they never specified, but... The Weeboo Wagon? <laughs> the Weeboo Wagon? <laughs> oh, dear God. <laughs> but, actually, this wasn't a totally unfair judgment on their part to go to the basement because later in the report, they called out five tornadoes that happened in a 20-minute period in this area. Oh, my gosh! <laughs> That's horrifying! Yeah, so not only are they dealing with a crashed airplane and some heavy rain, but there's also tornadoes everywhere. <laughs> Also, being in the basement probably helped them to survive not the crash. getting hit. Well, yeah. yeah, not not, but a little bit earlier, there the kids in this family were outside playing, out in the front yard. Oh no! And I this, just got goosebumps. She oh got, no! She got a call from her husband and said, "Bring the kids inside." So she brought the kids inside. They're all in the basement, and at one point, she heard everything going on outside, and so she went upstairs to go close the door to the basement and saw the fire. I just got chills. Oh, no, I don't like that. Oh, ooh, ooh. She was interviewed in the Air Disasters episode. Yeah, she was. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This investigation was performed by the National Transportation Safety Board, or the NTSB. Passengers and flight attendants testified, and supported by weather reports and the CVR that was recovered, obviously from Nick's uh, narrative, Yeah, that the plane was in the rain for most of the flight and was in heavy rain and hail for about two and a half minutes before the engines lost thrust. Why did the engines fail? When investigators began transporting the engines to a facility to examine, they heard some clinking inside and found fractured bits of compressor fan blades. We've talked about this a lot lately. Yeah, right? <laughs> now, how could this happen? Engines are built to withstand massive amounts of water to fly through such storms. Did something go wrong? Pratt & Whitney, the engine manufacturer, ran water ingestion tests, though they could not replicate the exact conditions of the flight because they could not discern what exactly they flew through, especially the water concentration, and they couldn't conduct the test at altitude. 
somewhat obviously. Yeah. So they tested at sea level with water-to-air by weight ratios from 4.1 to 18% and thrust from idle to takeoff, not in that order, if that makes sense. So they tested at a bunch of varying water amounts through all the different thrust settings to figure out how the engine responded. But no matter what they did, they could not get surges or flameouts. No compressor problems, no damage to the blades. They did find, though, that rotational speed would be lost at low thrust setting with 14% water-to-air ratio, which they found did happen when the crew lowered the thrust settings to descend from 17,000 to 14,000 feet. These tests did not explain the damage, though. But later calculations showed that at much higher flow rates, it would cause similar damage to the blades by causing surges in the compressor stage of the engine, a phenomenon I will now explain before going any further. We've talked about surges throughout this story, kind of, but it's a little bit more complicated to understand. To produce thrust, engines have to take the inlet air and make it hotter and more pressurized. The first step is to bring the air to a higher pressure, which is done with a compressor setup where air passes through one fan and is then compressed before reaching a second compressor fan, and then going towards the combustion chamber, which heats the air. Now, if airflow is disrupted for whatever reason, air gets built up in the compressor, becoming continuously more and more pressurized until it can't hold it anymore, and then it kind of pops, usually with flames. This is uncommon, but not unheard of during takeoffs and such, but usually no further action is required from the flight crew. It doesn't damage the engine, anything like that. But in this flight, it happened repetitively, causing low cycle fatigue to the fan blades and subsequent fracture. The repetitive surging was confirmed by passengers who saw the flame burst before the engines eventually quit out altogether. Investigators found that the surges were aggravated when the crew advanced the throttles to try to climb to 15,000 feet. The engines were no longer capable of being generators after losing some rotation from the low thrust setting to descend and was unable to produce thrust after the surges. Now, what I find interesting is that the investigators concluded that, quote, the lack of typical foreign object damage, including hail damage from known encounters, to the fan blades and the blades in the forward stages of the low-pressure compressors clearly indicates that hail ingestion was not responsible for the compressor damage. End quote. Why is that interesting? The Air Disasters episode on this says that hail was responsible. That's why I asked if hail was the issue. Right, that's why I said it's more complicated than that. In the episode, they said that hail got s- probably got stuck in the bleed valves, which is used to relieve pressure in the combustion area. But that's not what the report says, so I don't know where they got their information. Right. We're going off the report, which says not hail. Okay. At this point, on April 29th, 1977, Douglas, the manufacturer of the plane, and Pratt & Whitney, the engine manufacturer, together announced a service bulletin to all DC-9 operators to avoid thunderstorms slash monsoon conditions, And if that's not possible, to override ignition and engine ice protection should be activated and thrust should be at or above 80% until clear of precipitation. This was then canceled in November with a letter detailing that, quote, one, followed the DC-9 FAA-approved airplane flight manual procedure for severe turbulence, two, do not make thrust changes in extremely heavy precipitation unless airspeed variations occur. If thrust changes are necessary, move 
thrust levers very slowly. Avoid changing thrust lever direction until engines have stabilized at a selected setting. 3. Engine ice protection is required. 4. If installed, engines sink and autothrottle systems off. End quote. Now, moving on. The investigators did give some credit to the flight crew that they were able to initially land safely on the highway, as chances of doing so were extremely low, as it required knowledge of glide ratios for different configurations and airspeed combinations, and they had no thrust to correct for any erroneous control inputs. However, the NTSB also questioned the flight crew's decision to make such a landing and the prior decisions that brought them to that point. The CVR was inoperative for the two minutes that they did not have power. So at this point in the recording, they're not sure why, but the crew made a 180 back to west-northwest instead of continuing to Dobbins. Right. The theory is that they did so to maintain visual conditions so they could focus on starting the engines and APU, but that cost them valuable altitude. Yeah, I don't understand why they would just try to fly... Yeah, they literally were heading at Dobbins, and yeah. then they turn around and start going the other direction. Uh, yeah, just keep flying to Dobbins. Worst case scenario, do what you did and try to find a place to land. But they don't know why, because that was during the two minutes of cutout. Right. right. So, the world may never know. Now, amongst all this, there is an unfortunate tragedy that they could not prevent, and it was purely due to circumstance. The plane had actually flown right over an airport without knowing it. Which airport? Yep. Cornelius. Cornelius something. Was it a small airport? It was, but it was bigger than Cartersville. I'm just wondering why ATC didn't send them to that airport instead. We'll get to that in a second. Cornelius Moore is the name of the airport. So the reason that Atlanta Air Traffic Control did not tell them to go to that airport is it was out of their radar. They didn't know the airport was there. Why didn't they know it was there? They were, so their radar coverage is here. It's 40 miles. Their airplane, The airplane had just entered their radar. They've got Dobbins, Cartersville, but the they had just flown over an airport just outside of their radar view, the air traffic controllers. When they flew into the radar view, they flew away from that little airport, but, but Atlanta can't see that little airport because it's off their radar. But they probably knew it was there. Nope, they didn't. They don't. It's not in there. If it's not in their sector, they don't know. I Okay, I have a hard time believing they don't know there's another airport just outside of ra- radar. They didn't. These people only have to cover a certain area, and they know their area very well, but, but they don't know it. anything who, outside Who covers of that area? Somebody else. But who? Now they're at Traffic Controller Center. Probably Memphis. But that's not who they were in contact with. They were calling Atlanta for multiple reasons. One, they were in their airspace. Two, that was their destination. This is 1970s. It was literally unavoidable. There was... Unless it's some, tragic, but there's nothing that could have been done about it. We'll get into it, but there's actually a recommendation on this. Okay. I, I'm just... I find that very, very hard to believe, but okay. No, but it happened. 1977. Unless they had a chart in front of them, they probably didn't know. There's so many little airports in this country, too. Most of the time, they just don't know. So in any case, unfortunately, they flew right over that airport, and it was significantly closer than either one of the other two, and they actually would have made it. But they never knew that. Now, investigators then moved on in the report to address a broader question. Why did they fly into the storm? The crew had flown this route earlier, and they had not received any weather reports to say that conditions were any different than when they had flown it two hours prior. 
Investigators also surmised that the flight crew relied heavily on the onboard weather radar for weather avoidance. Air traffic control at Huntsville gave weather advisories after takeoff, but also only had radar for 40 miles and didn't have weather data for the area that was around the Rome VOR, which is where they encountered this storm. The only other weather information given in the flight was from Memphis about Sigmet Charlie 7, and there's no evidence that the crew even got that Sigmet in full. I was going to ask about the ATIS, but is ATIS even a thing by this time? ATIS was a thing, but this isn't... ATIS only applies usually to the airport they're approaching, so they'll get the ATIS information for Atlanta when they would get closer. But When the crew discussed flying through a hole in the storm, it is likely that the radar was affected by attenuation of the radar signal. Weather radar works by emitting a signal and discerning weather data based on how much of that signal bounces back, kind of like echolocation for a bat. If it doesn't bounce back, it must be clear ahead. But if there's a lot of rain, it can cause that signal to bounce off in a completely different direction and not back at the plane, making it look like there's a clear path ahead when the exact opposite is true. When the captain said, all clear left approximately right now, that's when they flew into the worst of the storm. Yep. And that's all I got. So here's a thing on that. Why didn't they get a briefing on it? That's what I was thinking, because... With some of the stuff I've covered, that's, I mean, I haven't really covered anything in the 70s, I don't think. But some of the Asian countries do a briefing before they have to take off on weather. That's not just Asia, that's basically everywhere. Yeah, everywhere they're supposed to. The airline is supposed to give them these documents before they leave. Which they did in the early morning of this series of flights that they were on but weather had changed since then and it was relatively unpredictable in fact in the two hours since they had flown through that area the weather had changed significantly mind you they had just flown this route two hours ago right and huntsville couldn't see it on their radar so they couldn't tell them anything they the airline should have looked at the weather data and as a matter of fact a weather report came out just prior to their departure that they should have known about and it was never communicated to them well, that's dangerous. Yes. Obviously. Yes. The person who gave them the information didn't even look into the weather. They just assumed it was fine because Huntsville was fine. Yeah, never assume. <laughs> yeah. It's better to be safe than sorry. So now for findings. The NTSB found that Flight 242 penetrated a severe thunderstorm between 17,000 and 14,000 feet near Rome, Georgia, while en route from Huntsville, Alabama to Atlanta, Georgia. They found that the ingestion of intense rain and hail into November 1335 Uniforms engines caused the rotational speed of both engines to decrease below the engine-driven electrical generator operating speeds and resulted in normal electrical power interruption for 36 seconds. So that initial power loss they had was from the hail and the water going in the engine. Because it slowed down the engine. and it slowed So it, it was the ingestion of water coupled with their low thrust setting since they were descending. Right. Which is why in that letter that Douglas and Pratt and Whitney released, is it said if you're flying through this kind of weather, keep your throttles up or decrease them slowly. Right. So that Because you... otherwise you can lose rotational speed and therefore generator capability. Right. They found that the rotational speed on at least one engine increased significantly to restore its generator to operation and provide normal electrical power. 
They found that the rotation speed of one or both engines was probably increased by advancement of the thrust levers. Shortly after the initial loss of rotational speed, both engines, high-pressure compressors, began to stall severely. And that was from them advancing the throttles to get higher, right? Yes, but too quickly. So they did it. They should have done it slower. Yes, which they didn't know because well, they didn't know what their engines yeah. were capable Obviously, of doing. Obviously, they didn't know or they wouldn't have done it. Right. But that's it caused the surging because water disrupted airflow. Right. And it actually caused the blades in the center part of the compressor to flex forward toward the other blades in the compressor. And so they started to come into contact with other parts of the engine and yes. fail. Yes. They found that the stalls probably resulted from a change in high-pressure compressor operating characteristics induced by thrust lever advancement and ingestion of massive quantities of water. I should have also mentioned that when Pratt & Whitney was doing all of their testing of the engines and they couldn't get it to fail the same way, it's because they were limited to like 125 gallons per minute or something. Right. So they couldn't get the same level of water going through, which is why they couldn't replicate it. Right. Yep. So... It's assumed that they were in monsoon conditions. Yes, basically. It was determined that this was one of the worst storms Ooh, in yeah. recorded U.S. history that they flew through. It was literally so much water that the testing facilities couldn't Replicated. pump that much water into an engine. That has to be a lot of water. That has to be monsoon-type conditions. It was. Because there's no way we get weather like that now. <laughs> I mean, not, not unless you're near an ocean. Yeah. Not that you fly through. They found that the severe compressor stalls produced an overpressure surge which deflected the compressor blades forward in the sixth stage of the low-pressure compressor. These blades clashed against the fifth stage stator veins and broke pieces from the blades and veins. Is that why they couldn't restart the engines? Yes. I mean, at that point... There was point, nothing to restart. Yeah. The engines were shattered inside. They couldn't compress anything literally you're talking about the blades did this into the other high spinning blades and they all just shattered so basically at that point what you're working with is just same pressure going in going out there's no thrust available there's nothing to pressurize that air inside the engine right they found that pieces of blades and stator veins were then ingested into the high pressure compressor and damaged them severely so again they shattered more parts of the engine they found that continued high thrust settings following the severe damage to the high-pressure compressors probably caused severe overheating in the turbine sections of both engines, and the engines ceased to function. They found that normal electrical power was again lost for 2 minutes and 4 seconds until the APU-driven generator restored electrical power. They found that after the, the engines failed, an accident was probably inevitable because Southern Airways flight crews had not received, nor were they required to receive, training or information on emergency landings with all engines inoperative. Ooh, that's not good. That's not good, but it also just wasn't common. Yeah, it was... It was one of those, like, one-in-a-million scenarios. It was never heard of that both engines would fail, basically, at the time. Now we've talked about it a few times, but yeah. it does happen. I would say never assume and train for it anyway, but just this, in case. this was also, these are the decades where aviation was learning. Right. So now we know yeah. you, you train for engine, both engine failure, yeah. but right. I don't know. I, I think here's what I think happens, you know, back in the early days of aviation is if they didn't have to train for it, they thought it wasn't possible. So they just didn't, even though they probably could have figured it out. Basically. But then something happened, and then they ended up having to train for it anyway. 
So, yeah. as I always say, cover your butt first. And you never know. Maybe it'll save your life later. Aviation is a lot better about that now, though there Obviously. are cases where that doesn't happen. <clears throat> Max. <laughs> Subtle. <laughs> they found that before departing Huntsville, the flight crew of Flight 242 had no information on thunderstorms immediately west of the Rome VOR. None. They found that while en route to the Rome VOR, the flight crew received no information on the existence of the storms immediately west of the Rome VOR, except for the indications displayed on their airborne radar system. Hence, they were relying on them. They didn't know. Nobody ever told them. And I feel bad about that. I mean, it sucks. How did, How was there so much oversight that so many different places, so many different people along the way didn't get them this information? Or they didn't find it themselves? I feel like it's one of those, I'm trying to think of what the term's called, but you just assume the person before talked to them about it, so you don't talk to them about it, you know what I mean? Right. And, of course, you should never do that. And now we have a better way to get weather data, so yeah. this wouldn't happen because right. the weather data we get now and the radars we have now are so much better that... Right. Please refer to all of our weather episodes. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, that being said, yes, there's all these different systems, but also, I mean, nobody passed this information along to them, and it turns out, in reading through the report a little bit, they were strapped for time. They were a little bit under pressure. Their turnaround time in Huntsville was super short. They didn't have time to eat or anything. They were just preparing to leave on their next flight. So, they didn't have any time to even eat lunch. They didn't have time for much. And as a matter of fact, by this point, they had already been on duty for over nine hours. They hadn't been flying for nine hours during the day. They'd only been flying short hops all day. So they actually didn't have much time at all in the air. But they had been on duty for over nine hours already. They had had an eight over eight-hour rest period prior to this, but the previous day was also full of flying. They were strapped. Time was busy. They were doing these turnarounds quick and flying all these little short routes so weather just became an oversight along the way. And by the way, you should never underestimate weather. Nope. Weather can mess your day up real bad. Real bad. Real bad. They found that based on information from the airborne radar, the captain of Flight 242 initially decided that the storms just west of the Rome VOR were too severe to penetrate. So he believed that the area that was showing on the radar was bad, was worse, didn't want to go through there. They found that shortly after his initial assessment of the storm system, the captain decided to penetrate the storm area near the Rome VOR. They found that insufficient evidence precluded a positive determination regarding the possible effects of fatigue on the flight crew's reaction and decisions. So that whole thing about not enough time for anything. When I say they were over eight hours, they had eight hours and 15 minutes of rest time. See, here's where I say... They didn't fly for nine hours, but they were awake and alert for nine hours, which if you've right. ever had an eight hour, nine hour day, right? it's, you're tired. It's exhausting. Well, and what blows about these little short hop routes that they're doing, all of them were under 40 minutes, is that... They only get paid for the time in the air, right? Yeah, they only get paid for the time that the engines are running. So the airplane has to be running for them to make money. That means their day is severely sh long. Because all their hops are so short. So the well, airline gets which, away with making them do a 13, 14 hour day because they only fly eight hours of that. Which I think is a bogus systemic problem, but we won't get into that. Yes, this is a problem that the regional carriers face today. However, 
they've found ways to manage this significantly better. But yes, at the time, this is what airlines were doing, and th- it, this was a pain for them. I mean, you think about it, this was still only 4 o'clock in the afternoon. They probably still had several more hops to go, and they were 9 hours into their shift. Holy crap. I can't even imagine. I get to 4 o'clock, and I'm done. <laughs> Yeah, right? I start at 7.30. By the time it gets... I'm supposed to be on till 4.30. By the time it gets to 4, I'm pretty much done for the day. Yeah. And I don't even do that much during the day. Right. <laughs> Not right now, anyway. But right. my point being is, don't count, like, just the flight time and say, oh, they weren't fatigued. Because you know that if you worked that long, too, yeah, you would definitely be tired by this point. Yeah, exactly. And you're, like, trying to get people places, and you're trying to get there on time, and yep. then you're hit with this weather issue, and then there's so much anxiety, because right. you're still trying to get to where, oh, sorry, you're still trying to get to where you need to go, but right. you also now have to figure out how to get around this giant thing. Oh, and now you lost both engines, and, right. I mean, it just kind of, it, 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 it builds. Compounded, yeah. <laughs> it builds. Yeah. Ultimately, the NTSB couldn't determine if it was a factor or not, though. There's no way they could know. They found that the captain's decision to penetrate the storm area was probably based on his interpretation of the weather radar display. Needless to say, they were relying on it. They found that at least 20 minutes before Flight 242 departed Huntsville, the National Weather Service had identified by radar the precipitation in the Rome area as very strong and intense with indications of hail and cloud tops over 40,000 feet. There was no going through this. There's only around. They found that Southern Airways flight dispatch personnel did not monitor adequately the storm system which moved into the Rome area, and the information that the dispatch section provided to Flight 242 did not alert the flight crew to the weather hazards along their route. Like we said, they just didn't do it. They found that the Atlanta Center controllers had insufficient information about the storm system in the Rome area, so they too didn't know much. They found that Atlanta Center's surveillance radars were of limited value in displaying severe weather systems. They found that the Atlanta Center controllers acquired limited knowledge of the storm system in the Rome area from the surveillance radar, so their radar didn't tell them much either. They found that the Atlanta Center controllers provided no information to Flight 242 about the storm system in the Rome area, and the flight crew of Flight 242 did not request any information from the controllers. So... There was a whole lot of just lack of communication about this really bad storm that was happening. They were flying into it, asking some general questions to air traffic control, but not really anything about, what is this? (laughs) Yeah, that's an oversight. Nobody seemed to be able to tell them anyways, because there wasn't Mm -hmm. enough information. Well, and again, like I said, we have better radar now, weather radar. Yes. And... In the United States, they have, like, if you've ever watched, there's an Air Disasters episode... I can't remember what it was, but they talk about how there's these points all over the United States that all they do is watch weather and get weather information and make sure that planes do not go into this kind of weather condition. Right. Even period, just period, like canceling flights when need be, rerouting flights if need be, just, it's just better now. They didn't have that kind of radar back then. Right. Or oversight, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. We'll get into that a little bit in the recommendations as well. There's one really key one related to this. Two more. They found that the accident was partially survivable. They found that the flight attendants acted commendably for initiating a comprehensive emergency briefing of the passengers for their protection in preparation for a crash landing. 
this contributed to the number of survivors. They do, they really did do a good job. It wasn't, there was nothing in the story that I could actually take from that in the report. This is more what I had to get from the episode, but actually they did do a very, very good job. There's there's some information on in the report, but basically they literally went one by one to each passenger, ran them through what to expect. They had the time, thankfully, so they did it. They went through, talked to each one of the passengers, they briefed everybody, told them how to handle it. Everybody was calm, and that is what contributed to survival aspects, because passengers were ready, and they had prepped them. And calm. And That's calm. like a key word there. Yep. Stay calm. Yep. They were actually later given some awards for their work. Oh, good for them. Can't say exactly the same about the crew. No. Okay, there listen, was... the first officer is really annoying. So the, there was no crew resource management in this. Now, mind you, no. it didn't exist yet. True. It didn't, remember. 232 was kind of the advent of that in 1989. It wasn't a thing in aviation until 92. No, it, it was Tenerife that started crew resource management. Basically. Which had just happened... Yes. Point is, it wasn't actually implemented to any of the U.S. airlines at this point. But that's what confuses me, is if you're still in a cockpit where the captain's right, why wasn't the captain more assertive? The captain wasn't talking. I don't know if you noticed, but the first officer was giving all of the commands. Yeah, I'm a little he confused was, He about was pilot that. flying, but the captain didn't have much to say. The only time he ever corrected him on anything was when he told him to use his flaps. He didn't say anything otherwise. He was just spitting back information to air traffic control that the first officer was telling him. That captain had significantly more experience. He should have been taking control of the situation. He should have even taken over the airplane. That said, he didn't. Instead, the first officer just kept spitting at him things to say to air traffic control, and he didn't. Tenerife was just a week prior to this crash. Yes. Dang. So no, crew resource management was not a thing yet. No. And it I shows. had to do that math real quick. I was like... 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, 1, 2, 3, 4. Yep. That's it. Nine days. Dang. Yeah. So, yes. So this was... It, it shows that there was no crew resource management for this. And there was a big breakdown in communication between the two of them in situation handling all these things. They just... This was a really difficult situation. And there's no saying how anybody would react in the situation. I'm not saying they were necessarily completely right or wrong. But I would say that there was definitely a lot of a lot of things that could have been done differently and would have worked better for them. I think if the first officer was not so if his energy wasn't so much. Yeah, he was way too anxious and he kept talking over air traffic control. He was nervous. Like I obviously. get that. But you're you're a flight crew member. Right. You need to be calm. Right. Uh, if anything, you're the one who has to be calm. Right. You're the one who has to fly the airplane. Right. Calm your shit. Yes. Dude. <laughs> yeah. I, and you said that you were really annoyed with the first officer, and I was like, it can't be that bad. It's that bad. Like, yeah. He was talking a lot. Let the captain do his job. <laughs> right. Stop consistently asking questions. Right. Let him get answers first. Arguably, this is very similar to several other crashes we talked about, where he is keeping this captain so preoccupied with just trying to communicate with air traffic control 
that the captain can't even pay attention to the airplane's information Mm -hmm. and what's happening with the airplane. So he could have avoided some of these other situations. It's likely that if he wasn't trying to talk to air traffic controller deal with the weather, he might have even noticed that the engines were spooling back and they lost power for 36 seconds. They could have avoided that, probably, if he had noticed that the engines were losing power on their own. But he wasn't paying attention to it. Neither of them were. They were too preoccupied with other things. The National Transportation Board determines that the probable cause of this accident was the total and unique loss of thrust from both engines while the aircraft was penetrating an area of severe thunderstorms. The loss of thrust was caused by the ingestion of massive amounts of water and hail, which, in combination with thrust lever movement, induced severe stalling in and major damage to the engine compressors. Major contributing factors included... The failure of the company's dispatching system to provide the flight crew with up-to-date severe weather information pertaining to the aircraft's intended route of flight, the captain's reliance on airborne weather radar for penetration of thunderstorm areas, and limitations to the Federal Aviation Administration's air traffic control system which precluded the timely dissemination of real-time hazardous weather information to the flight crew. Now, let's have a quick discussion about this probable cause. There were two comments at the bottom of this report. One from a person who completely agreed with this, one of the members of the NTSB who completely agreed with this, and one who did not. Okay, what is there not to agree with? Allow me to read you, because the first comment was from Kay Bailey, acting chairman, who concurred. She said, I agree with the report and the probable cause because I am not convinced that if the flight crew had attempted to secure further weather information, it would have been sufficient to to dictate a delay in takeoff or a change in route. However... When our previous recommendations to improve weather dissemination are fully implemented, pilots will have the benefit of real-time information. So that's the gist of what she's getting at. Now, Francis McAdams, who is a member of the NTSB, filed the following dissent. Are you going to read the whole thing? Oh, no, no, no. But I'll read the first paragraph, and then I'll read what he literally wrote as his probable cause. For the first paragraph, he said, I do not agree with the board's probable cause for two reasons. One... It is merely a statement of what happened rather than being an explanation of why the accident occurred. And two, it is not clear as to the effect of throttle movement upon the loss of the engines. Now, he actually wrote out his own probable cause for this accident. And mind you, he wrote like four pages on why he thinks this was not correct. His, he says, therefore, I would state the probable cause as follows. The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable cause of this accident was the captain's decision to penetrate rather than avoid an area of severe weather, the failure to obtain all of the available weather information despite having prior knowledge of the severity of the storm system, and the reliance upon airborne weather radar for penetration rather than the avoidance of the storm system. The penetration resulted in a total loss of thrust from both engines due to the ingestion of massive amounts of water and hail, which in combination with advanced throttle settings induced severe stalling in major damage to the engine compressors, which prevented the crew from restarting the engines. Furthermore, if the company's dispatching system had provided the flight crew with timely weather information pertaining to the aircraft's intended route of flight, it is possible that the severe weather would not have been penetrated. He also has a contributing factor. But, point is... I feel like he's really going into semantics on this. A little bit, yes. They don't have... so. Okay, this is 1977. We talked a little bit about this. They don't have real-time information. The radar on board showed a 
quote unquote hole until they were right at it and it was right. no longer a hole. Right. This was known to be an issue, not just on this flight, but with other flights that encountered weather. Anything with a Bendix weather radar, which was very common in most airplanes at the time. So to be fair, I would say that the fact that they went into the storm wasn't their fault because the radar from where they were on their route showed them that there was a hole when in fact beyond that point was even worse weather right and this is why they didn't change the probable probable cause cause because they didn't feel that this was correct they felt that air traffic control didn't have enough information and the flight crew didn't have enough information to go on about what was actually happening in specific parts of the storm that's changed a lot he's trying to put it a lot on the flight crew exactly and not a lot on the on circumstance you are correct they i would have to agree more with probably the probable cause they actually have listed officially but yes his probable cause definitely leans heavily more on the flight crew being the cause of the accident than anybody else i like the one they have in the report Because they did not know that the ingestion of that much hail and water would cause the engines to act that way. They also didn't know that if you advance the levers with that much ingestion, it causes basically both engines to just not work anymore. Right. So I wouldn't say that it was the captain's fault to make that decision. They made the best decision they could at the time. But it was the flight crew's, I I wouldn't say entirely fault, but it was definitely a contributing factor that got them there in the first place. Yeah, I'm not saying that it wasn't a factor. I just don't think it was the cause. So I would argue that this NTSB person, this McAdams person, was definitely seeing into the future. He's right in some regard because he's seeing into the future and he sees that Crew resource management, basically, as a concept, is on its way. And at the time. Again. But it didn't Tenerife exist yet. was so... Like, I can't imagine the kind of place that all aviation agencies were in, where it's like, we just had the worst crash in history. And then nine days later, you have another crash. Well, and this wasn't the only one in that time period. But yeah. That's horrifying this is how the 70s kind of went you know what was what's really funny this is a little off track but i kind of think it's funny i watched this show called mindhunter mm-hmm. and they're on love plane. that show I, it's great if you haven't watched it go watch it they smoke in the plane well That's there's nice. that but that was the case until 1995 but the <laughs> the main characters on that show have to be on planes a lot and i'm like yeah. how are you not in a crash <laughs> 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 like crashes were so like a normal occurrence back then. Yeah, pretty much. And the it's very it was a higher probability that you would have gotten into a plane crash back then than it is now. Significantly. So I just I just think it's funny every time I watch them on a plane I'm like how have you not been on a plane that's crashed? Yeah, during the time it definitely was significantly <laughs> worse. And but I think Mr. McAdams was definitely leaning toward the direction of this crew resource management thing. He wanted to lean on the crew because there were so many issues with the crew in general. Yeah, I think there were some definite And you can kind issues. of see that in the NTSB's official probable cause that they didn't lean on the crew because there wasn't much of an understanding about the concept of crew resource management yet. This was really a developing thing, needless to say. I would say they would also need to know about the actual weather before they took off. 
more if you were going to blame it on the crew, if they had had this information, proper information before they took off, I yes. could see how you would blame the crew, right? Because then they knew it was going to be bad and they took off anyway. Right. But they didn't and no one gave them that information right. and they did the best they could while they were in the air. Yeah. They knew something about there being storms, but they didn't know much. And even if they had that information, I could argue that, yeah, maybe it wasn't enough because they didn't know much about the storm. Nobody did. So, fun fact, I did a little boop a boop while you guys were talking. Uh, there's a Wikipedia page for this guy. McAdams? Yeah. Nice. Interesting. He was born in Brooklyn, argumentative, from the beginning. Yep. He was a longtime member of the NTSB. He joined in 1967, having been appointed by President Lyndon Johnson. Hmm. Fancy. And was confirmed by the U.S. Senate. He was a naval aviator of World War II. He obtained various degrees, including a law degree from Georgetown. Uh, he wow. was a corporate and trial attorney from 1946 to 48. And from 48 to 51, he was an attorney trial examiner and air safety investigator for the Civil Aeronautics Board. 51 to 54, he was a senior trial attorney for the Civil Aeronautics Board. 54 to 58, he practiced law in Chicago. And then 58 to 67 was an assistant to a member of the Civil Aeronautics Board. He was reappointed to the NTSB at least three times. He published, quote, professional immunity and incident reporting through the Department of Transportation in 1977. He died in 1985 while jogging. Bummer. Interesting. This is not the only crash he dissented on. Needless to say, I would say not. He seems to be the type. The argumentative type. To write three pages? I know. He only dissented to two others. One of them was TWA Flight 159, and the other was PSA Flight 182, which, in parentheses, the gist of his dissent was adopted as official findings three years later. Wow. Good for him. Maybe we should cover that sometime. We will. We need more recommendations. We haven't had them in a while. There's a little plug. Okay. So there's not a whole lot of recommendations here, thankfully. So the NTSB recommended to the FAA to expedite the development and implementation of an aviation weather subsystem for both en route and terminal area environments, which is capable of providing a real-time display of either precipitation or turbulence or both, and which includes a multiple-intensity classification scheme. Transmit this information to pilots either via the controller as a safety advisory or via an electronic data link. This exists. Yes, this exists now, and this has been heavily changed. This is significantly, significantly different now. Needless to say, our weather reporting is so much more accurate now, especially now with satellite data. They recommended establishing a standard scale of thunderstorm intensity based on the National Weather Service six-level scale and promote its widespread use as a common language to describe thunderstorm precipitation intensity. Additionally, indoctrinate pilots and air traffic control personnel in the use of the system. You might remember this. We literally discussed this in detail. Deeply. For reference, since we've brought this up several times, I want to tell you what those episode numbers are. Ooh, ooh, I should write this down. Um, Our weather series is episodes 38 through 41. Just so you know. I should most likely have them linked onto this blog post. So if you go to our website, they will be at the bottom if you want to just listen to them. Yep. If you haven't already. Yeah. Yep. Or re-listen. I don't yep. judge. They recommend to the FAA to transmit SIGMETs more frequently on NAVAIDs so that pilots can receive more timely information about hazardous weather. So in other words, 
over the radio on ATIS, any of those. Right. Just making it more accessible, m- more accessible information about these sigmets and what they actually are. The recommended code according to ge- geographic applicability. Severe thunderstorm bulletins and tornado watch bulletins issued by the National Severe Storm Forecast Center, which I believe is just now part of the National Weather Service, so that they may be transmitted to appropriate air traffic control facilities by the FAA Weather Message Switching Center. Thus, air traffic control facilities can relay the earliest warning of severe weather to flight crews. That happens. Yes, this is also just changed a lot so it's almost not necessary anymore i mean if you you get weather alerts on your phone now about impending bad weather two days in advance now i mean yeah yeah it's so advanced that they're like "Mm, you should probably watch out for that the next 48 hours right they recommend requiring that each air traffic control facility depict on the map portion of its radar displays those airports immediately outside of the facility's jurisdiction to the extent that adjacent facilities depict those airports on their displays. That airport that was missing from the radar. Yeah. Because it wasn't in their jurisdiction. That's what they're talking about. Having an extended display so you can see your jurisdiction, you can see just outside of your jurisdiction to the other air traffic control areas jurisdictions that way you can see those airports that are just outside of your area and you could use those if you absolutely need to say in this situation yeah for emergencies if a plane needs to make an emergency landing for some reason this was critical and this did get implemented in a way and it's also just become more common knowledge if you're working in a specific area you should know the chart for the whole area that you're working in well and, and isn't radar just farther out now Yes, generally, but it really depends because you're talking about these big traffic control facilities that handle vast parts of the country. Parts of the country, like the Denver area, uh, the Denver control area is actually most of Wyoming, Colorado, big parts of Kansas, Nebraska, down into New Mexico and across to Utah. It is a massive area. They're talking about you know, five, six different states of area that they actually have to cover in a large port of the country. So they section off those parts so that it's easier for an air traffic controller to take care of one part of that entire Denver area center. Right. So this gets really complicated, but at the same time, it does make sense. And it's important that they implemented that so that air traffic controllers can use these facilities, even if they're not familiar with them, but they know where they are. Finally, they recommended formulating rules and procedures for the timely dissemination by air traffic controllers of all available severe weather information to inbound and outbound flight crews in the terminal area. So if there's weather in the area, just making sure that, you know, if it's in your area, that you're able to get that information to flight crews as quickly as possible. True life. So Southern Airways um, is no longer a thing. They got eaten. Nom-nommed. Um, I'll go into that more in a second. They only had two accidents, though, and we have now covered both. The other accident that they had was Southern Flight 932. That was episode 21, for all who yes. want to go listen to that. Mm-hmm. In the late 1970s, so this Around time, this time yeah. Southern yeah. Airways began to experience difficulties, namely from their two accidents, blighted the airline's otherwise excellent safety record, Improved highways, including the interstate freeway system, coupled with an increased willingness of passengers to drive. 
To which I'm like, yeah. I hate driving. <laughs> okay, but like a less than half hour flight? Yeah. Like, calm down. Yeah, this wouldn't have been as, this is not as common of a flight route anymore. So it, it made a lot of what they do unnecessary. Yeah. Obsolete is the word that Wikipedia uses. I read a lot off of Wikipedia today. I'm sorry. A big part of why a lot of airlines don't fly the routes they do anymore is because of this. And it's also why we have so many friggin' airports in the United States. It is a vast area. And we didn't have, used to have really good roads or good cars to get between them. So we were like, oh, hey, flying things can do, do that. that. And... So all these little airports and all these little towns, towns you're like, why in the world would anybody fly there? Well, because it was easier to do that than drive. Eagle, Colorado. <laughs> yeah, but that one's still important because <laughs> it covers a lot of ski areas. But we're talking about like Muscle Shoals, Alabama. Are you kidding me? <laughs> they flew a DC-9 to Muscle Shoals, Alabama? Yeah, they did. Because it was easier than driving. The other thing that kind of put them out was the increasing cost of jet fuel. That would Makes do it. sense, yeah. Yeah, during that time, that was very Inflation. common. Inflation. Mm-hmm. So in 79, they merged with North Central Airlines to form Republic Airlines. That one is actually was around for a very long time. Which was later acquired by Hughes Air West before being acquired in 86 by Northwest Airlines, which continued to operate many flights from the former Southern Hub in Memphis and later merged into Delta yep. in 08, which makes sense. Um. They're from Atlanta. Nom, nom. Atlanta. <laughs> yeah. Nom, 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 nom. <laughs> South. So, yeah, this is from a time period where the United States had all these different airlines for the different portions of the country, and they didn't overlap, ever. Yeah. Literally, the airlines wouldn't fly the same routes, and they wouldn't fly to the same parts of the country. So Do you know s- their one international location that they flew to? Yeah. They, they flew internationally. Somewhere. Canada? No. Mexico? No. Caribbean? Yeah, they flew to Grand Cayman. Woo! Yeah, I liked it there. It was nice. Nice yeah, that beaches. makes sense. So you had Southern, you had Eastern, you had Northeastern, you had Northwest. They you flew had, to Denver. You had Southwest. You had, yeah, they had all these different airlines for each part of the country. And actually, somewhere there's a map for this. But in any case, I did want to mention there were two other safety recommendations they had. Their brief and they kind of make sense. One of them is about the radar attenuation effects from yeah, these storms. That's not a thing anymore. Needless to say, that wasn't even really important anymore because things changed and the way that these weather radars work also changed. Then we have satellite data and Doppler and all that stuff works so much better. The other one was interesting. They recommended expediting its review of recommendation A7340 with a view toward early requirement of properly designed shoulder harnesses at flight attendant stations in air carrier aircraft. You know, all things considered, both of those cabin crew members survived. I mean... One of them wrote a book. Yes. Yes. It definitely seems like this kind of was a recurring theme through a lot of the episodes we've talked about. These harnesses, both between the flight crew and the cabin crew. But this was an important thing. However, they survived. So I think the harnesses did their job, ultimately. Yeah, I mean, they well, use one of harnesses them, now. And one of them ended up in the closet. That's how she lived. Yes, basically. It's kind of interesting to have That's a closet. Not uh-huh. great. I mean, yeah. the flying at that time was more luxurious. Yeah, you'd, you'd actually take oh, your coat off true. and hand it to the flight attendant. 
Yeah, that's not happen is, anymore. Well, that's not entirely true. If you fly international first class and actually some domestic first class, you can hand your coat to them and they actually have a coat closet for that. It's just really small. It's like this big. <laughs> <laughs> not everybody can. Only our 10 passengers in first class. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You're correct. That's kind of funny. So that's basically it. That was Southern Airways Flight 242. And it's... Huzzah. And it's mess. But... It, it is interesting to see how aviation was during that time and how things have really changed, both for weather, but also the way they treated the information about crew. Mm-hmm. So we did say you could send comments. I'm not surprised by who sent this. <laughs> <laughs> and that's okay. So I'm assuming this was after our Antarctic episode that he sent this? He said that it was on that episode. I tried to research sightseeing DC-10 MD-11s a few years ago because I too could not figure out how people in those god-awful center aisle seats saw anything but the head (laughs) in front of them. (laughs) I would think a much smaller turboprop or helicopter launching from the Antarctic after the DC-10 or whatever had landed there would work out better. There are something like 21 plane crashes in the Antarctic. Mm -hmm. Some of the wrecks are still there. In Operation Deep Freeze, a Navy LC-130, Hercules set up for Arctic Mm -hmm. ops with skis attached to the landing gear, can operate off of snow ice runways, was lost and was eventually buried in something like 17 feet of ice. Yeah, I actually know about that one. In the late 70s, Lockheed and the Navy decided to get it back. (laughs) yeah (laughs) our next door neighbor at the time was a lockheed guy who went down to the south pole to participate in recovering the hercules it was repaired and flew back to lockheed georgia in marietta georgia and was quite visible sitting on the lockheed ramp still in its arctic ops paint scheme that's kind of cool okay yeah um let me just dig out a plane from 17 feet of ice and i don't remember if we talked about it in the episode but they still do these antarctic yeah. sightseeing flights but it's Qantas out of Australia yeah, now. Yeah, we, we did do, talk about we it. We do talk. Yeah, and they do it with 787s now. They did it with 747s for forever. It's still like middle people. What do you do with the people that are sitting in the middle? What do you do? Why wouldn't you take a narrow body? Yeah, at least most people would be closer to the window. At least better yet, like take regional jets where there's well, only two people in each. I, can they get that far? That's the, the only problem. thing is Yeah. The, the time factor the for time the regional and jets. The, and the, 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 the gas. And nowhere to land. The fuel, yeah. <laughs> and nowhere to refuel. Okay, well, thanks for listening, everyone. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Wear, Wear a mask. mask. Vote. Please, God, vote. Does this already come out after voting? I think this is voting day. The day of the election. Wait. <laughs> I think is this it? comes out the day of the election. Public service announcement. If you have not voted yet and you are listening, you better get your butt to a voting station and you are going to vote. Okay? That's it. Only to our U.S. listeners. Okay. Thanks, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to that, Chris, and all of our other people. But obviously, we're meeting with you on Friday after recording this. Yeah. So, again, check out the Patreon. Send in your stories. Send in your questions. I actually really enjoyed this. All right. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hardlandings Podcast and on Twitter at Hardlandings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. 
This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.